hello, welcome to Log Rocket. Um, my name's Noel. I am a dev here at Log Rocket. With me today is Peggy Razis, Senior Director of Developer Experience at Apollo. I hope I got all that right. How's it going? Peggy? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to chat about GraphQL and Apollo with you today. Nice. Yeah, we're we're big we're big Apollo and GraphQL users here, so I'm excited to, to talk as well. Um, I guess yeah, to kind of get us rolling, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, how you found yourself at Apollo, and and your role there? Yeah, absolutely. So I lead developer experience at Apollo, and my org's mission is to inspire and equip developers everywhere to be successful with Apollo. And so we tackle that in a number of different ways. We have the education team and they make sure every release ships with complete approachable documentation as well as build out our learning platform, Odyssey. And so they're all about educating developers at scale. We also have an in-house video team that's under the developer experience org because uh, video has been a really big focus for us uh, since the pandemic, obviously. And then we have uh, developer relations, and they're all about helping developers at scale. They're out there in the community, listening to their pain points, and then either crafting content or code solutions in order to help them. Nice, nice. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have like a lot of a lot of avenues kind of at play at once. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, we kind of we understand. Um, so maybe I guess to contextualize a little bit, I'm I'm sure most listeners are familiar, but um, can you kind of set the stage? What is Apollo? Uh, what's it trying to do in the kind of the web client space? Yeah, so I think I'll kind of just start with like our north star and the problem that we're trying to solve. Right, I think modern app development is complex right? Like developers increasingly to build features have to connect to a number of different data sources, whether it's a REST API or, you know, a database or gRPC or, you know, maybe even some legacy infrastructure like a mainframe, right? And so then once you get all of that data in the form that you need, then you have to connect that to an increasing number of clients, whether it's a web app or mobile apps or IoT. And so uh, it's really difficult to, to do that and keep you know, pace with the, the change of innovation and everything that's constantly being asked of us developers. And so that's really where Apollo comes in. And we aim to simplify that process by helping developers build a super graph. And so a super graph is a unified network of all your data services and capabilities. It's a new layer of the stack that sits between your client and your uh, your clients and your backend services. And uh, it decouples that front end and back end development for you. It lets you delete a bunch of really complex data fetching code. And ultimately, it helps you uh, get your ideas out into the world that much faster. Nice. So is this is this super graph like um, kind of an aspiration of or a goal maybe of GraphQL like in general or is it like an Apollo target specifically? I think it's an opinionated way of doing GraphQL. So like GraphQL, if you've used it before, 
it's just a spec, right? It's incredibly uh, flexible. It's a, it's a language for communicating about data. You can implement that in a number of different ways and a number of different programming languages, right? You can um, you know, use it for service-to-service communication. You can use it as a layer over your database, right? There's plenty of kind of startups uh, tackling that space, but we've been doing GraphQL for a really long time, right? Like uh, it's got to be like, seven plus years at this point. And, and we've worked with, you know, thousands uh, of developers and companies trying to do this at scale. And what we found is that uh, the most effective way to implement GraphQL is to build out that super graph. And so there's a couple of principles kind of underlying the, the super graph. We believe it's one layer, right? You don't want to have uh, multiple different layers because then you're going to continue to do that data transformation on the client and have to write all that code. Um, But we don't want it to be a monolith, right? Like it should be uh, a modular architecture that's built into parts. And so federation is kind of the underlying open technology behind the super graph that allows you to build out your uh, super graph, your, your GraphQL schema in modules. And we also believe it should evolve over time, right? Like, you know, products' needs are are constantly changing, right? Like, we as developers have to be super flexible and adapt to that. So, uh, a lot of our SuperGraph tooling makes it really easy for you to constantly change your schema. I mean, some of our customers are publishing changes to their SuperGraph like 30, 40 plus times per day. And so, uh, yeah, one layer, build it in parts, evolve it over time. Those are the three principles for the SuperGraph. Nice. Yeah. So can we like kind of kind of break this down into into the specific like tools that you guys kind of maintain and, and send out into the world? So we have like the Apollo server. Is that really where like most of the super graph work is happening? Some of it, yes, but not all of it. So uh, Apollo Server is our uh, JavaScript implementation of a GraphQL API. Uh, it's, you know, kind of our our really our first subgraph framework. We call those kind of uh, modular schemas that make up the supergraph. We call them subgraphs. And what's cool about uh, Federation, which is that like underlying graph composition technology, is you can use Apollo Server. It works great, but you don't have to. It actually supports over 20 different languages and frameworks. So we have uh, subgraphs that are compatible in uh, Java and Kotlin and Python and Go and Ruby, right? Like you can choose whatever stack that that fits your needs. Gotcha, gotcha. But like the the Apollo server, like the, you know, JavaScript server is like open source, right? Like that's all available. Is this is this tech driving the supergraph also like open source and readily available? Uh, so some of it is, yeah. So uh, Apollo server is uh, open source. Uh, Federation, the latest version of it, it is open source available, but it's licensed under ELB2. Got it. Got it. That makes sense to me. So like, can, can, I guess, can, can companies then like, if, if they want to run Supergraph, can they do it, do it themselves? Is that like a way that you guys do it? Or do you really want to be kind of hosting it and managing it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you can absolutely like use all the parts yourself and, and run it yourself. We also, um, you know, can manage that for you. Uh, a lot of folks have success doing it uh, either way. Cool. Um, yeah. And then just to kind of help us get the whole landscape painted here. So then like, there's also the the clients that you guys work on, where, do, heck, how do those kind of play into the, into the picture and help developers? 
Yeah. So uh, we have several different clients and they are open source libraries that help connect your Supergraph to your app. So we have Apollo Client Web. That's our most popular one. That's like 4 million weekly downloads, like very, very widely known, especially uh, by React developers. We also have uh, iOS and Kotlin clients as well that are powering some of the the largest uh, mobile apps in the world. So a lot of us know us for our web stuff, but the the mobile community uh, in the GraphQL space is uh, small but mighty and, and growing as well. Yeah, nice. Nice. That's awesome. I guess kind of one... one um curiosity that I had, or maybe just like kind of interesting concept is I I feel like developers coming from a REST background, like we didn't really have as strong of a presence uh, in like the REST ecosystem as Apollo has established kind of in this GraphQL paradigm. Why do you think that this like um, kind of being in this space of having an opinionated way to implement this standard is it has manifested in the way that it has here. Like, why didn't this really exist to this extent in the rest kind of era? And now it is, it is coming to be. Yeah, it's a good question. It's one that maybe like, I don't have the exact answer to, except to say that like, I think the reason why Apollo has really resonated with developers is because we have always relentlessly focused on improving the developer experience and making folks' lives easier. Um, You really see it in kind of everything that we do, like from our documentation to our learning materials. We want it to to make it really easy for you to learn our technology Uh, from our open source libraries, right? Like we want it to be really delightful to, to build with our technology and then our SaaS as well, right? Like we want you to be able to ship it to production and give you the confidence that um, you need to be able to run that super graph safely. So I think maybe, uh, you know, what's different now is just uh, from the, the rest to now the GraphQL ecosystem is really just like focusing on the needs of the app developers and championing them and uh, including their perspectives in everything that we build. Yeah, nice, nice. That's an awesome answer. Do, do you think like the paradigm itself has led to that at all? Like like the way that um, like the implementation of GraphQL has to be done on the back end is, is kind of pushing developers towards using a tool to help them more so than was going on with REST. Like I feel like often the case with REST was you know, a dev would come in, they'd use some server framework, it would give your REST API endpoint, like REST endpoints. You would use them, it was kind of the, like, that was kind of all of the consideration you'd give to it, was like, how are my objects shaped? I'm going to expose them as near, like, as closely as I can via REST. And that's all I would really think about it. Do you think that, like, having another layer of kind of abstraction to figure out in the middle has pushed devs towards, like, looking to another tool? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think like the interesting thing about GraphQL is it's, you know, primarily kind of like this backend technology, but a lot of the interest for GraphQL comes from the front end developers, right? They like hear about Apollo client and they're like, okay, I want to delete all of my data fetching code and like remove all of this complex, like, uh, you know, Redux, like hand spun data fetching code for my app. And so they start kind of investigating that and like falling down the GraphQL rabbit hole and diving into the abstraction layer and then having to suddenly learn about like these backend concerns, like data modeling, like putting together your schema and then like connecting it to the data sources. So yeah, I think um, 
you know, in order for like GraphQL to succeed and for product developers to be able to uh, implement it successfully, you, you need to have that great developer experience and guide them towards sensible defaults and giving them a path and, uh, you know, like making the the right decisions to to build a resilient performance super graph. Yeah. Do, do you ever see that as a challenge just kind of in the GraphQL community in that like it is a back-end tool that has been really kind of shaped and, um, I don't know, requested by the like front-end people, developers? Yeah, I think, um, and it's certainly getting better, but but certainly in the early days, I think, you know, when, when product developers were, were trying to adopt GraphQL, they were often met with a lot of resistance uh, from the backend teams. They're like, we already have, you know, these great REST APIs, like, can't you just use these, you know? But I think um, once the backend developers understand that uh, it's actually really like healthy and good to like build that GraphQL schema collaboratively up front, right? And before you start building, let's like map out our data and write that schema. And then the backend developers can then build the resolvers and connect those to the data sources in a performant way. The front end developers can use that mock schema to build features independently. Then it, you know, decouples that front end and back end work and really accelerates product development. I think once the back end developers like feel included and see that in action, then a lot of their concerns uh, start to go away. But it's definitely like an uphill battle in the early days. I also think there was kind of a lot of um, maybe misconceptions early on. You would see like a lot of GraphQL versus REST blog posts, right? They're always trying to like pit these technologies against each other. I think that's sometimes... uh, what we do in order for for clicks or to to stimulate like interesting discussion, right? But like GraphQL is actually really um, great as a layer over REST. It's not like picking one or the other. It actually works really really nicely, kind of just uh, as a layer over your REST API. So I think maybe some of kind of the early blog posts like pitting the two technologies against each other, like making developers think that they had to rewrite their entire systems and all the REST APIs when that's really not the case. I think that might have uh, led to a little bit of confusion as well. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, so that that then kind of leads me to an interesting question. Um, when we're talking about like the super graph and kind of having, having an even more, um, I don't know, like regimented way of, architecting like the interface with your data do you think that adds to that kind of hurdle at all like okay we we're like we're going to start writing graphql and we're also going to do it in this manner so like the you know model exists in this way do you think that that is like another i don't know little bit of rope that the the front end is asking for of the those back end people i don't know if it's like a little bit of rope more i i think actually the the back end engineers really gravitate towards the idea of a super graph because now instead of, you know, having a GraphQL monolith, like a single point of failure, you have this, you know, distributed graph that's written in parts and you can enforce healthy separation of concerns and each team can kind of iterate on their slice of the graph independently. So I would actually say that the super graph gives backend engineers more confidence in the stack as opposed to just building a GraphQL monolith. Nice, nice, awesome. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. 
You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. I'm curious there... Um, I guess how, like, say, say you're a new company getting started and you're trying to figure out how, how you want to start moving data to the front end, or maybe you've got like a pretty basic API right now. And you're like, kind of, you're like, well, we got to level this up and make it a little better. Where, like, how do you recommend that they, like those groups kind of go in and architect their like data exchange layer? Like presumably, you know, we're using these tools, but like, how do they begin? Where do they do that modeling? Like, where do you, where do you start? So what we always recommend is start with the schema first and maybe just pick like one rest endpoint. Like don't don't get too crazy. Like don't try and stuff everything in this first GraphQL schema. You want to just take a very isolated use case, one endpoint and build a really small schema around that. And so then once you have that schema and both the front end teams and the back end teams agree upon that, then you want to, uh, you know, just write some resolvers, connect that to uh, the, the REST data source. And then once that's built, then you can connect that to the client and it should be a really simple, straightforward process. So that's what we always recommend is like, start small, start with one subgraph. Don't feel like you need to build like five subgraphs right off the gate and all this, you know, uh, like complex data modeling and stuffing everything that's in your REST API into your schema. It should really be built upon your use cases and demand oriented as opposed to maybe like just auto generated or stuffing everything inside. So start small, iterate over time and, you know, it'll all kind of work itself out. Yeah. Nice. I guess. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll bite a little bit here. Like our, I would, I would postulate that many backend devs would be skeptical that it will just kind of work itself out. Like if we were making bad design decisions here, like we could be really messing ourselves up in the future. Are there any concerns that you like in anything you would say, make sure that you are accounting for like X, Y, Z or anything that you'd ensure that or want to recommend to like backend teams to ensure that they're not going to wind up in some, you know, kind of uh, painting themselves into a corner in some manner? Yeah, so I think um, obviously you got to be aware of the N plus one problem. You don't want to be, you know, uh, inadvertently making too many downstream requests to your backend services. So uh, Apollo server ships with a really nice abstraction called uh, data sources, which has a built in uh, resource cache for your, your REST APIs to alleviate that problem. There's also some more advanced uh, libraries like Data Loader that you can use to solve that issue. A lot of our SaaS actually helps with some of this, right? So you have Apollo Studio and you can uh, wire up traces so you can see exactly how long each of your resolvers are taking to resolve and you can diagnose those uh, performance issues before they become a problem in production. And once you have those metrics wired up, um, another really great way to have more confidence in your, your super graph is to 
um, be able to prevent breaking changes. So we have a feature uh, that actually uh, is free now as of last month, so everyone should use it. Uh, it's called Schema Check. So it actually uses the live traffic against your API um, to make sure that any changes that you're making to your graph, whether that's uh, adding fields, removing fields, making something like uh, nullable that used to be non-nullable, right? Like it'll check all of that against your production traffic and uh, give you a thumbs up or thumbs down, integrate really nicely into GitHub with the PR process. And so uh, that will also give you change, uh, confidence in changing and evolving your graph, making sure that the changes that uh, you're making aren't going to affect production. No, that's pretty cool. So is that is that schema check then help, helping ensure that like if there's a change that you need to publish to the front end before you start making back end changes like you were doing that, I guess that order of operations of like changing your graph is done correctly where you're not going to end up with requests that start failing like if a client's got an old version or something. yes yes absolutely and that's super important with mobile right because like with mobile apps you could uh an old version could be on someone's phone forever right so you can kind of monitor the different clients that are making those requests and the percentage of each version right like we have client versioning so you can kind of pinpoint uh exactly you know which version of the client is making those requests and uh, yeah, just, you know, makes that process super seamless so you don't have to worry about shipping a breaking change to production. Nice. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. And on that, on that kind of the first, that first tooling you mentioned where we can like um, use, use the studio to go in and like figure out where the, like where the resolvers are slow and what's hanging you up. Like I can speak to that firsthand. We've used that all the time and it's like, oh, this is super, super handy. Nice, like, nice. It's, it's so easy, or it's so often the case that there's like, there's just one errant resolver that's just like going off and doing its thing. You're like, oh, yeah. obvious bug here. Like, so it's so helpful. And I think there's actually some really exciting developments uh, happening with the the GraphQL spec to kind of address some of those issues. Now with uh, Defer, you'll be able to kind of use that directive to indicate that, um, you know, it's okay if that data isn't here yet, defer that until that request comes back. So it's just another way that, uh, you know, we'll be able to optimize and fine tune the performance of our GraphQL APIs. Nice. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And maybe a good segue. Does that like does the defer um, like logic, does that bubble all the way down to the client? Like are clients aware of those like, um, you know, like, oh, this data may be coming back later? Uh, yeah. So you would actually uh, mark it on your, your query that you're making from the client and you would just put that at defer directive next to the field that is slow. And so um, obviously you'll kind of need to handle those states within your app, but then that will propagate down to your uh, subgraph and, you know, uh, be able to kind of wait uh, or defer until that request comes back and then send that chunk to the, the client. Nice. Can you give me an example of when that would be like useful? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I mentioned, one of the use cases where GraphQL really shines is just connecting all of these disparate data sources. And a lot of our customers, uh, particularly like retailers, have had tremendous success actually connecting the SuperGraph to their uh, mainframes. So say you have kind of like a really slow API or, you know, your, your mainframe technology, right? Like, and you know that that uh, field takes a, a, a while to resolve, you can just, you know, mark that uh, defer directive on that field and you don't have to, uh, you know, worry about waiting on that data to come back to send the rest of the response back to the client. Nice. Nice. Awesome. While we're, while we're talking about the client, 
Um, what other kind of cool stuff is is on the um, like on the short term roadmap for the the clients that you guys are working on? What cool new front end tools are are coming soon? Yeah, we have some new hooks coming in Apollo Client. I'm not sure if it's the next release or the the release after, but uh, use Fragment and use Background Query are two new hooks uh, that uh, client developers will be able to use on the web. We just added some uh, improvements to the mobile clients as well. So Apollo iOS is nearing the 1.0 release. And then also uh, Apollo Kotlin added support for Kotlin multi-platform as well as some caching improvements. So a lot of exciting developments happening to the client to just make that client developer experience even better. Nice. I guess, is there anything in particular um, that like, using Apollo client and Apollo server, like using, using both of those versus just like using, like say using server and like, you know, writing your own client or using some other one. Like, is there any cool benefit to using both the devs might be stoked from that? Any cool benefits? Uh, well, we have the client registration feature. So if you use Apollo client and you also use our SaaS Apollo studio, you can then register your versions of the client and then those versions will show up in the metrics. So that's a really handy feature. Um, the truth is like we built these tools to be very modular, right? Like you should choose the stack that like fits your needs. You know, we we uh, want you to have a great experience whether you're using just client, just server or both. Um, so uh, all of them are pretty modular and, and interchangeable. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, I guess more broadly, is there any other kind of cool stuff on the horizon for you guys? That, um, you know, if you want to talk about or even like changes to the like standards that are coming down the pipe that you're excited to see. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the new Supergraph technologies that we uh, just launched recently is the Apollo router. And so uh, previously kind of the uh, the, the mechanism for, uh, you know, taking that request and distributing that to the different subgraphs. Uh, that was Apollo Gateway, which was kind of a special version of Apollo Server. And so it was written in uh, TypeScript. And so uh, we heard from a lot of our customers that uh, either they weren't, you know, comfortable uh, deploying Node in a production environment, or they, you know, just kind of uh, like wanted a uh, a single binary, and so we built the uh, we built the Apollo router, and so it's a really high performance uh, Rust router with like sub millisecond latency, and uh, it's just super cool. Like the team building it is so amazingly talented, and so uh, we recently just uh, released that into GA, and so I'm really excited for everyone building a SuperGraph to get their hands on it and start using it because it's really cool. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. I'm somewhat surprised to hear that there were like, uh, I don't know if you guys had, had customers or just, you know, users you were talking to that were hesitant to deploy like a node router, but they're like big Apollo people. Like that's, that's surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like there's a lot of like enterprise customers, like, you know, running like a Java or Kotlin uh, stack. So the, the languages are across the, the board. Obviously the gateway works really well. Like it's horizontally scalable. A lot of our really large customers are using it in production, but it's great to have, you know, the Rust router uh, be another option for folks and be able to, you know, open uh, some more doors uh, for people to adopt the Supergraph. Yeah, nice, nice. So I guess, yeah, kind of my 
my my last line of questioning on this topic then is like for devs that are just starting to get into the space you're like they're you know, mobile devs that are interested in making the switch or they're like web devs and they just you know haven't haven't really had a reason to jump into graphical at all like any anything you'd recommend for them or anything you'd point them at yeah, absolutely. So definitely check out our learning platform, Odyssey. You can find it at apollographql.com slash tutorials. And so uh, we're really, really proud of Odyssey. It features uh, like 30 to 45 minute short courses. They have like two to three minute short snappy videos along with code challenges to test your knowledge. And it's a really uh, gentle but like complete introduction to the Apollo platform that will give you that real world practice. And so uh, it's been around for, I guess, a little bit over a year now. And like thousands of developers have completed these courses. We're really proud. Um, So whenever a developer takes a course, the feedback survey gets like uh, sent to like a Slack channel and we read everyone. And uh, the course quality rating is like 9.5 out of 10, which Obviously, developers are a critical bunch sometimes. So to be able to like achieve that and give them that really great experience, like we're so proud of it. So definitely check out Odyssey. Uh, the team that builds it is phenomenal, and you'll uh, learn GraphQL and Apollo and have fun along the way. Nice, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So then I kind of, I kind of wanted to, to segue a little bit from that into your background. Like, how did you find yourself in this kind of you know dev experience role at a kind of pseudo open source company? Like what did that look like? Yeah, it was an interesting journey. So prior to working at Apollo, I was an engineer at Major League Soccer and uh, we were a small team over there with a lot of uh, different apps that we were responsible for. We were bringing the mobile app in-house and and building that with React Native. We also had this like real-time match experience app on the web. And so we did the whole like REST to GraphQL uh, transition over there. And it was incredible. We like deleted these back end for front end services. We deleted all this Redux code. We could uh, support the web and mobile apps with like a single code base. It was incredible. Uh, and so uh, I wrote a blog post for the Apollo blog, like on our uh, experience. And then that kind of led to me uh, being hired at the the company to work on Apollo client as a open source engineer. And so uh, I did that for for about a year worked on like local state management um as well as kind of like uh onboarding uh to apollo client and i was doing a lot of like dev advocacy work kind of like on the side i was traveling to conferences and giving talks about apollo client i was doing workshops with some of our very like first customers and so my role just kind of gradually morphed into uh more of a devrel role and then Uh, adoption grew and grew, the team grew larger, and then uh, the manager ended up leaving to take another role. And so they kind of split the open source team into two. And uh, then I became uh, the manager of the developer experience team and, you know, kind of gradually uh, built it up over the past four years. So it's definitely been an interesting and fun and exciting journey. And uh, yeah, I'm just very thankful for the experience and also excited about our future. Nice. Did you guys have, like, was there much of a focus developer 
like advocacy team or group or anything in Apollo before that? Or was, was this kind of like the inception of it? This was the inception. Yeah. It, it wasn't really like everybody was kind of doing it on the side, like writing blog posts and like tweeting and stuff, but it wasn't anyone's like full responsibility. And I think just that focus on open source and, developer communities has always been a part of the company's DNA. Like before it was Apollo, it was called Meteor. And Apollo, uh, so Meteor was like a popular uh, JavaScript framework um, about, you know, seven plus years ago. And so Apollo started off as like an experiment to rethink how to, um, you know, what the data layer could look like. And so they chose GraphQL and uh, you know, built the client and the server around it. And so Apollo was really like a small team inside Meteor. And then as adoption grew and grew, um, the the business pivoted. But, you know, open source and community have always been like true to our roots, even, even before Apollo was the main focus. Nice. How do you think that that kind of open source um, background or, you know, like origin story, like affects how you guys think about like, you know, dev experience and dev advocacy and stuff? I think it affects like nearly every part of the company, right? Like I think every function, whether it's, you know, developer experience or marketing or, you know, product, like we all realize that developer trust is so important to the company's success and it takes years to build that up and you can lose it in in an instant. And so that's why it's really important for us to constantly be listening to developers, taking in account like their feedback and and trying to solve their pain points and uh, really champion them and give back to them, right? Like that's why we built Odyssey and, and made all of our learning experiences free. That's why we put on GraphQL Summit, which is like our big uh, conference that we do for the GraphQL community. It's why we, um, you know, sponsor and encourage the development of these other uh, subgraph frameworks in different languages, right? We're, we're constantly trying to uh, give back and, and empower our developer community and it's you know core to, to everything that we do nice do you think it's it's easier to get feedback in general like than you know say say you were a you know totally closed sourced proprietary software company yeah absolutely i mean uh you know because a, a lot of the technology stack is open source we're constantly getting feedback and uh you know, GitHub issues and and discussions and uh, getting pull requests as well from contributors like looking to improve the software. So uh, I think open source is definitely the way to go if you're building a, a modern dev tools business. Nice. Okay, last last kind of tricky question then. How do you balance that feedback that like you're getting and like, you know, pull requests that you're getting or like, you know, uh, just issues that are getting a lot of traction on GitHub or whatever versus like, the work that you're trying to get done to keep the business growing and afloat and, and all that jazz. Like how does that, how does that balance play? I think they go hand in hand, right? Like ultimately what's going to improve the the business and the experience for, you know, uh, the customers running the super graph at scale is also going to improve the experience for developers who are just getting started. So uh, I think like, ultimately, uh, you know, improvements to the the product and the commercial side, like kind of a rising tide lifts all boats, if you will, and also um, helps the community. At the end of the day, like regardless of whether 
a feature is uh, free and open source or, you know, enterprise, we're just trying to make developers lives easier. And so, uh, you know, that feeds into everything that we do. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, cool. And I just like, uh, it's cool to hear those um, kind of answers from people in in roles like yours, where it it seems to just be able to be done largely just cohesively, like it just kind of all works, right? Like, having an open dialogue with the customers in at a much more intimate level, like if we can call, you know, GitHub communication intimate, then it is um, like, it's cool to hear that that is able to be like turned into um, improved products for the, for the community. Um, Yeah. Anyway, is is there anything else kind of in, uh, in Apollo at large that's coming up or has been driven by recent, you know, development or requests that you're excited to see? Uh, let me think. I know we've talked about a lot already, so if not, that's, that's okay. Yeah, I feel like I've mentioned all of the the big ones, at least the ones that I can talk about <laughs> publicly. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I think there are a lot of other exciting things coming that I can talk about publicly, but uh, I would like to give a shameless plug. Uh, if you are interested in learning about the future of GraphQL or uh, participating in the future of GraphQL, we're hosting GraphQL Summit the first week of October in San Diego. Our CFP is open. I'm not sure if it'll be open by the time our uh, episode airs, but there's going to be plenty of amazing talks, plenty of really uh, exciting Apollo uh, product improvements that we're really looking forward to sharing. And also um, product improvements uh, from other GraphQL leaders in the space as well um, that I'm sure will also be talked about. So yeah, come to Summit. I'd love to see you there. If you see me there, say hello. I love meeting GraphQL developers um and uh you know sharing what we've learned with them awesome cool well uh, i guess yeah thank you so much for coming on and chatting chatting with becky it's been a pleasure yeah thanks for having me noel it's been so much fun uh talking graphql and apollo with you of course of course yeah take it easy thanks Thanks for listening to PodRocket. You can find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.